Hi, this is Marcia Reynolds, author of Coach the Person, Not the Problem, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Marsha Reynolds. Dr. Marsha Reynolds is president of Covisioning. She's the training director for the Healthcare Coaching Institute and has trained and coached many leaders for hospitals, clinics, laboratories, medical devices, and pharmaceutical companies. She's also coached executives and high potentials and delivered classes for leaders in the fields of telecommunications, energy, computer software and hardware, banking, as well as federal and state agencies. Dr. Reynolds is a pioneer in the coaching profession. She's one of the first members and the fifth global president of the International Coaching Federation. She's recognized by the global gurus as a top coach in the world. Marsha's doctoral degree is in organizational psychology. She continues to research workplace behaviors, leadership effectiveness, and the science of motivation and engagement. She has two master's degrees in education and communications. Her interviews and excerpts have appeared in Psychology Today, Fast Company, Talent Management, Forbes, CNN, and the Wall Street Journal, just to name a few. She is passionate about how we can expand our minds, transform lives, and uplift consciousness in our world through conversations. She's the author of four published books, including The Discomfort Zone, How Leaders Turn Difficult Conversations into Breakthroughs. Marsha lives in Phoenix, Arizona, and is here to talk about her book, Coach the Person, Not the Problem, A Guide to Using Reflective Inquiry. Welcome, Marsha. Thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. Terrific to have you on My Quest for the Best. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? That has to be my grandmother. I'm a very small woman, but my grandmother was very tiny. But she was an immigrant, and she left when she was like 15 with her then-husband, and her family was probably killed. She never saw them again. And they came to the United States and they built a life and they wanted to create great things for their children and their grandchildren. And she was just the toughest woman I ever met. Nobody could tussle with my grandmother. And she was passionate about everything she chose to do. And she loved to take people in and to help them. And it was her character strength and her love for what she did that just embedded in my brain and gave me the energy to do what I do in life. Where did she immigrate from? Ukraine. During the Bolshevik Revolution, she was a double whammy. Their family was Jewish merchants. But she had that entrepreneurial blood in her. And I think that was passed down to my father and passed down to me that we were going to create businesses and be successful. So I never doubted that my work would not be a success. Later on, do you remember maybe earlier in your career, reflecting back on your grandmother's example, on her character strength, on her energy and passion, and realizing that you were making a decision or having a conversation buoyed or guided by something she said or some lesson she taught you. There was one incident I fully remember when we would be watching television and out of nowhere, she would jump off the the couch and go, God bless America. And I always thought that was weird. And finally, some years 
later, as I was growing up, I asked her, I said, so what was that about? Just that you love this country? And she said, I am so grateful for the opportunity for life and for the path that I have found that I never want to not be grateful. And I think that was the big thing that even though I know I create my success, but I am so grateful for the opportunities, for the privilege, for the ability to be able to go into the darkness and come back out into the light and keep creating. And she gave me that. Yeah, it was a power and a passion and a strength and a gratitude for the opportunity to do something that you have the abilities to do and ways to contribute in the world. And it keeps me humbled too to remember that it wasn't that long ago that they came from nothing and built it on their own. When they, when my grandparents came to Phoenix, I wasn't around, but they didn't have jobs. They didn't have much money and they had enough to buy chickens and overalls. And so they would every morning go out and collect the fresh eggs and put them in all the pockets of their overalls and go door to door and sell fresh eggs. How amazing is that? And then they built this. So when they had enough money, they got a refrigerated truck and they just started building a business from that. My father started his business selling plastic bags out of the trunk of his car. And so I saw in my family that you can do it if you can dream it, but it's going to take hard work and discipline and know that it's not going to happen overnight. And that was really important for me to remember. So many people ask me now, how do you get to be such a great success? I'm like, I've been a coach now 25 years and I've been building my visibility and I keep putting things out there and for free even to help people to do what they need to do. And now I'm very well known around the world. Marsha, early in your career, do you remember a time when you suddenly got a client that made all the difference or you published something and got a much bigger response than was expected? Do you remember a turning point early in your career that said, wow, I am at the next level. And you just suddenly realized it after all the hard work paid off. Actually, in the very first year when I, the whole, what most coaches go through Am I really providing value? Will I be successful? And we always start off coaching friends, relatives, and people referred to us from those we know. Because coaching was new, I had been interviewed by the local newspaper about this new profession, which was a big deal that I got in the paper. And I got a phone call from that interview. And it ended up being my first stranger client from someone I didn't know. And he said to me, I really think I need a coach because I have this firm, but I'm not happy with it. And I need some direction. He said, have you ever coached attorneys? And I said, no, but my ex-husband was one. And he said, good enough. And from that, in, in through the years, I realized it's more about people want to feel safe with you than necessarily your years of experience. That it's more about the connection and the relationship that we create. And I knew that from my father because he had been built his business and I sold for him for a while. And the people were always, they always wanted to know about my life, but they always told me, your father, he would get up in the middle of the night and come give it, bring us product if we needed it. And and he was such a good man. And he was more expensive than the bigger companies that came in. But they didn't care. It was the relationship that they trusted him, that they liked him, which then they trusted and liked me as his daughter, even though they didn't even know me. And I've realized that along the way that 
even in my coaching, it's more about the relationship I create with my clients than my proficiency in my skill. Especially at the beginning, I imagine. Totally, because you're not proficient in your skill. I mean that both in the beginning of your relationship as well as the beginning of your career, because many people have to take it on faith to enter into this kind of relationship where they're going to be challenged, where they're going to be made uncomfortable in the spirit and in the service of helping them become better at what it is that you're working on together. I do a lot of coaching demonstrations. They're available online. I do them in webinars. And people always say, the person was so vulnerable with you and they were so open, even though they were being watched by so many people. And I said, that's because from the very beginning, I knew that the the energy between us had to feel safe, that they had to feel I cared about them and that it was safe I wouldn't judge them. And if I could establish that early, then I could take the coaching deep and there would be discomfort and it's okay. We'd work through it and they'd come out on the other side. And a lot of that is not even what I say is that I care, that I'm curious about what they have to say. I'm not trying to put words in their mouth and I won't judge them. And they know that they feel it from the very beginning. That is so critical, whether it's a sales relationship, whether it's a leader employee conversation or with a client. Now, you're known for saying that coaching is the best human technology for changing both minds and behavior. Describe what you mean by that. And if you would, differentiate coaching from mentoring and general feedback conversations, things that people often mistake it for. I loved that you said human technology. The words I use are that it's the best learning technology we have, but it is a human technology, so that's great. So my second master's degree, which was many decades ago, was in adult learning. So yes, the degree was education, but it was like how do adults really learn and change and grow and when they're resistant? For years, I kept trying to improve my training programs. And people would come through my classes and they'd give me the happy faces and say, I changed their life. And then they would go out and try. And as soon as it felt awkward, they'd go back to old behavior. I kept trying to improve my training. And the long-term behavioral change just wasn't happening consistently. When I found coaching, it was the same time that they started the whole neuroscience campaign came into being and they had a a way of scanning the brain that truly understood how we learned and how we changed. And I recognize that telling people what to do, whether you're mentoring and you're sharing your experiences, whether you're a manager and telling them this is what's best for you, or you're a trainer instructing them that you're only operating with short-term memory. And they may remember what you said, probably not the details as they recall it, they'll change it. And again, it's not embedded. So if it's awkward, they'll go back to old behavior. When we coach people, we are a thinking partner. I'm helping them think through their stories that are getting in the way and seeing old beliefs that don't serve them and, and what they're making up about the future. And when they start to change their stories, when they see new possibilities, it changes their behavior. And the behavioral change sticks. I didn't tell them what to do. We discovered it together. That's far more powerful. And it works in the middle brain, not short-term memory. So it's an entirely different part of the brain that makes the difference. Marcia, another distinction that you make in the book, Coach the Person, Not the Problem, is that you want to not have transactional coaching, but you want to differentiate. Sometimes transactional coaching is what's called for, but often you need to realize that there's this whole of the world that's accessed through reflective listening and an inquiry that's trans.
transformational. How do you describe the difference between those two vastly different levels to people, to someone who's never experienced it? First off, just look at the words. So transactional means to trans is to cross over into action. So all we're looking at, what can you do differently? We do a SWOT analysis. What's the strengths? What's the weaknesses? What's the opportunities? What's the threats? And so we analyze the problem from that perspective and then choose an option for moving forward. As you said, Bill, sometimes that is what's required. I need a little bit of sorting through my options in a way I can't do on my own. But transformation means crossing over into a a new formation of ideas. So what's happening in coaching is the solution that you choose actually emerges from the conversation. So when we say we go deep, It's what I said before. I'm looking at, so tell me how you see this situation. And I'm listening for the beliefs that's holding your story together from past experiences. This is what's happening. And and there could be other possibilities. And the assumptions are predictions about the future. I know this is going to happen. I can't have this conversation because they're all going to quit. Oh, really? How do you know that to be true? And the fears that people will judge me if I do things certain ways. Is that fear holding you back? When we start to look at the assumptions the beliefs, the, the fears, and often the conflicts of values. It's like I want to give more to my work, but I have my family. When we're trying to balance, that's a conflict of values. When we start looking at that and people hold the stories out in front of them, they can see the things that were old and don't serve them any longer. And once we see that, it breaks through the stories and new opportunities emerge, which is a transformative process. Once these emerge, you can't go backwards. They know what they need to do. I never have to tell my clients. They're always like, oh, I see it now. Okay, I know what I need to do. All I have to do is say, okay, by when are you going to do that? And could anything get in your way? Is there any other support you need? That's all I have to say to end it. I love science fiction and have read it a long time. And one of my favorite writers is Robert Heinlein. And he wrote that a person's mind can never be the same once it's been stretched to a new dimension. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Had to read him in high school. It's uh, well worth the time. We're now in March of 2021, a full year into the pandemic lockdown. From listening to your business clients and from what you've learned from your field research, what have you noticed as common themes or concerns that have arisen in the last two or three months among leaders? As I was telling you, Bill, and our own conversation earlier that the pandemic has been a great opportunity actually for coaches because leaders are finally understanding that there has to be a shift, that they have to, especially remotely, they have to have more empathy. That's jumped to the top of the list of leadership competencies is empathy. So people feel heard and understood and valued. And I always say they want to be seen. They want to be seen. We've always wanted that from our leaders, but we never expected it. Now people are expecting it because they have fears and uncertainty. And if leaders don't do this, they're just going to often, they'll just say, forget it. And they certainly don't give their best effort to the job. And it's difficult because we're all working from home and we're connecting via video conference now. Isn't that casual observation, the conversations in the hallways that took place? Marcia, can you share an example of a firm that you've worked with and the leaders or managers there and how developing empathy helped them become a better team during this pandemic lockdown? I would say that my personal coaching clients, it's more immediate, that it's so amazing to me how they get so stuck in the stories. I have this one situation where John, a director of a division, and 
he was going to have a difficult conversation with a woman he had promoted and she was not doing well. And he kept saying to me, oh, I'm going to have to tell her that she can't do this any longer. She's going to get emotional. I don't know how I'm going to deal with that. She may quit. And this was a pharmaceutical company and, and they tend to be doing right now, but they still need to retain their best people. And in the middle of his going through this long story about what's going to happen, remember I said assumptions about what's going to happen, he paused and he looked looked away and he sighed. And underneath his breath, he said, but I thought she'd be the one. And then he came back to the conversation and said, and it's going to be just awful. I know it. I, I just can't see a way through to a good result. And I said, wait a second. What did you just say there when you paused and you looked away? It almost sounded sad. He said, not sad. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that I think I promoted her too soon. And because of the pandemic, I didn't get her the training she needed to be a good leader. And I shoved her into to this position. I said, so with that knowledge, tell me how different you're going to approach this conversation. He said, I'm going to start out by taking responsibility and then just listening to her. Does she really want to be a leader? And if she does, can I support her in her growth? So when the time comes, she's ready. And if she's going to be angry with me, then it's okay. It's okay. I will take that on. It was an entirely different conversation than when we started, when he said, I just have to tell her that she can't, can no longer be a supervisor. What I hear there is that it was him putting it on her that her numbers weren't measuring up or that the people weren't cohesively forming into a team to accepting responsibility that he also didn't prepare her to succeed and he felt a little bit sad, embarrassed, ashamed of his own lack of support in helping her be successful. Yeah, right, Bill. And honestly, he didn't even know if she wanted to be a leader. He never asked her Oops. much, even in the beginning when he said, do you want this? What do you think you need? How can I help you? Just those three questions would have made the difference. And he was on the verge of losing one of his best employees. And Bill, it's so common. When leaders are uncomfortable, they talk too much. They go in and you're exactly right. So here's what's happening and the numbers aren't being met and people aren't happy with you. So I'm going to have to move you. And they talk, talk instead of saying, we've got some problems here and I'd love to have a conversation with you to see what you think about what's going on and what we might do to make it better. Can we not open up the conversation instead of shut it down? And make no room for the other person to contribute to the conversation by them constantly pattering on. And it's really just filling space. It's just filling space because they're scared. The discomfort makes them scared. Now, we've talked about this discomfort that causes people to do things that seem acceptable. They're not appropriate, but it's acceptable because it goes on so commonly. Let's talk about the discomfort zone that you describe in the book. How do you help someone realize that they are feeling uncomfortable about a conversation and that they are falling back to an old behavior or an inappropriate behavior that's not really going to advance the cause. One of the things that leaders here, particularly in the United States, don't do is pay attention to their body. It's like everything's in their head. Everything's in their head. They don't even have a body. It's numb. The key indicator that you're not really thinking things through is tenseness in the body. So fear. Where does your fear show? up. For different people, it's different places. It could be your chest. It could be the back of your neck. It could be your sweaty palms. You know, anger, irritation. Where does that show up? It could be in your stomach. I had one person tell me her ears get red. You have to notice when there's tension in your body and breathe and release it. That's the first part so we can let a conversation unfold instead of thinking I have to control it. That's a really important insight. I hope everyone listening understands that we all have these signals because the 
that's internal, that's coming from our bodies, letting us know. And if we don't pay attention to those signals, it's like not paying attention to a, a road curve signal or a sign when we're driving and we could find ourselves in a ditch. Yeah, that quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because when we have tenseness in our body, then we react and then often say things we regret later. Instead of noticing breathing, because you probably stop breathing, releasing the tension and just clearing your thoughts before you speak. When you work with managers and leaders, do you help them build that in as part of their routine so that they're regularly checking in with themselves? How do you approach that so that people can increase their level of self-awareness? Yeah. First, I we do have a conversation of where do you think you experience fear, anger? Judgment is an emotion. That's a big one in conversations. Am I judging the person I'm with that they're not capable, that they're inadequate, that they don't care? For me, judgment is like right in the center of my chest. I can feel it. And I teach all over the world and even now remotely, and many of them have different value systems than me. So they trigger my judgment. But you can go to the grocery store or the airport or someplace or call someone in your family who who irritates you and you'll feel your judgment. First, we talk about where do these things show up in your body? Where do you hold? And then I have them do an exercise for two to three weeks. They, They use their phone. They set an alarm to go off or their computer if their phone isn't on, but my watch will go off two to three times today, a day where it just, when it goes off, you have to think, so what am I feeling right now and why? And once they start doing this, after a few weeks, it starts to become automatic to where they start creating a self-awareness of what am I feeling in my body and why? And what is it I need to feel differently right now? So before I go into a difficult conversation, I certainly don't want to be irritated or afraid. I need to be hopeful and confident and caring. Otherwise, the conversation won't go well. So managers are looking to connect with people because we are physically separated. I've always hated the term socially distanced because the pandemic requires that we're physically distant. And when you say socially distant, people automatically rebel against that because we don't want to be socially distant in order to just protect ourselves from infections with the pandemic. So when people are, are physically distant, we're not in touch in the same way. It's not the same as being together in a room and laughing at lunchtime or getting people together for a training and really having intense time to work together and process things and create those types of interact. What does it say about, what do you recommend that managers adopt as a way of connecting with people while we're working remotely? Because I think that's going to be true for quite a while to come. It's another option that's really exploded in the way that you say it's been a great opportunity for coaches. There are a lot of people who say that they're more productive working from home. There'll always be people who want to come into the office and there are always going to be people who say, you know what, I figured out how to make this work really well for me. How do we get people to connect with each other more effectively? If you're listening and managers listening to this and saying to themselves, I really want to, I just don't have any idea how. First off, I want to say I love your distinction between physical distancing and social distancing. You're absolutely right. It's a physical distance. We still need to socially connect and we can. The first thing when I work with people is check out your beliefs that I can't, you know, that is it just different or you really can't connect. Yes, you can, but it's going to require you to pay even more attention to the emotions you put out. So do people 
sense that you care about them. Are you interested in hearing everybody's ideas? When you come together, do you show, don't ask a generic question that nobody's going to answer anyway, but relate it to something that's happening. It's like, whoa, this happened last week that something in the company, we had a, a group of people like, rebel, what do you think about that? Or, or we've had great success. Isn't that exciting? Make it a relevant question and get everybody engaged in the conversation and show passion, show excitement, show uncertainty. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Let's work on possibilities together. So you have to engage everyone more because they can be distracted much more easily. And the emotions you generate are going to be critical. So it's not like you don't feel my emotion, but my passion, my care, my interest in you comes across in how I talk. And then I look at you when we're talking. So make sure that you do eye contact. You're able to do somewhat eye contact with your camera. So you're not looking at your computer over here because then I don't feel your connection. Marsha, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? Okay. Bring it on, Bill. All right. So we talked at the beginning of the interview about someone who influenced and inspired you. And you talked about your grandfather and, and what a, or your grandmother, who was such an important influence with her passion and commitment. When you were a teenager, Marsha, what's a song that you loved? All I can think of is Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. Do you use your system to stay on track and productive while you're writing books, coaching clients, working on so many different projects and serving people in so many different geographies? I have to say that my phone calendar is my best tool because I actually schedule in time for my exercises, for my walks, for connecting with someone. So I don't forget when I'm busy and I don't use the excuse. It's like it says, okay, time to get up and go exercise. And I do because you're work and your life are intertwined. What would you say is the best advice you've ever received? Claim your strengths. And what does that mean for you in particular? To identify my character, not just what I do, my accomplishments, but to be able to say out loud, I'm persistent, I'm generous, I'm courageous, I'm funny. To be able to say that and claim it, that helps me move forward. What would you say is the best $100 purchase or so you've made in the last six months? New toilet seats. You're going to have have a dinner party that you gather together and it's going to be physically distant so that allows people to gather in the room so you can be together. Who are three people you'd invite, living or deceased? Of course, my grandmother because she made such a difference in my life. That woman that made me claim my strengths. This happened when I was 20 years old. She changed my life. I was feeling sorry for myself and she told me to cut it out. So I would definitely invite her. And then I have to invite, I have a friend staying with me that it's so nice. We've known each other since we were sick and that we know each other so well, we're comfortable in our space. I would bring her there. That's terrific. Marcia, what is it? Complete the sentence. I'm gonna prompt you. I'm being successful when? How do you know you're going to be, you're being successful? At the end of a project I've worked so hard on, I feel it like this is going to make a difference. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I quit caring about what people think. I quit reading bad reviews on Amazon and comments on Facebook that, that aren't supportive. It's eh, not going to pay attention to that. One of the things that you say in your book that's really important for people to understand is that in order for a coaching relationship to be successful, even when it's a manager who says that, you know what, guys?
guys, we're going to engage in some of our one-on-one time, and I'm going to help coach you to be more successful rather than just urge you, tease you, or mock you. I'm just going to try something different. What has to happen between a manager and a subordinate, for instance, in order for the relationship to be effective? First, I, I would I work with managers just to have a coach approach to their conversations. Just open it up, be more curious, state a situation and say, what do you think about it? What have you been thinking you might do? Because I think you have ideas. Start there. And then when you want to go into more formal, just say, I'm learning this technique or this approach that I think would be good for both of us. Would you support me in working on it together? And this is a really interesting question. Managers can start a program like this, a new initiative to take a coaching approach to their relationships. What would you let them know that they should be on the lookout for to know that it's being successful? What are some of the early milestones that they might notice? People, less people coming into your office asking for your advice because you've helped them think. Yeah, you've helped them think for themselves that they don't have to keep coming to you. Well, Marsha, you have helped so many people who have listened to this episode now on my quest for the best today. I've been delighted with you sharing your wisdom and your ideas. I love learning about your grandmother who had such a profound influence on your life. I, I really appreciate how you talked about coaching helps people grow and you needed to take this out of your training background because you saw the training was having limited long-term effect and you wanted something that lasted longer and made a deeper impact. You talked about how the neuroscience helped inform some of the approaches and structures that you take and you led us through conversations and examples of how it's important to understand what's beneath the surface, the fears, the assumptions, the beliefs and stories that we use in order to avoid making decisions or taking action that we know would be in our best interest. You talked about John, who is the director of the pharma division, who was feeling, having conflicted feelings around someone whom he promoted and wasn't ready and hadn't had some important conversational details with that person earlier and how he's going to go back and improve that relationship, something that we could all learn from and how important it is to learn from our bodies. Something we carry around with us all the time is an important feedback mechanism for us to help us understand about ourselves because every emotion we have registers somewhere in our body. And if we learn to pay attention to that, then we'll learn to be better communicators, better managers, and better leaders. So for these reasons and so many more, Marsha Reynolds, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. So Marsha, before we say goodbye for now, tell me, where is it that we can find out more about you and your work online? My website is covisioning, one word, covisioning.com. Well, Marsha, we're going to link to covisioning.com as well as your um, current book, as well as all your previous books, as well as your social media. So people can find out more and keep up with what you're doing to help people learn about coaching to be used, not just in a directive fashion, but in a, a thinking partner fashion. Marsha Reynolds, author of Coach the Person, Not the Problem. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. 
We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.